Welcome to the Duke and Duchess podcast. Welcome back. I'm the Duchess. I'm the Duke, and we are here in episode 53. Woohoo! And in this episode, we are covering The Republic of Thieves by Scott Lynch, chapters 5 and 6. Yes, we are. What are we doing next time? Next time, we are going to be reading through the end of part 2 of the book. That includes an interlude, chapter 7, and the interlude after that. It's hard to describe. Lots of interludes. Gotcha. Okay. Chapter 7 and the interludes that surround it. Correct. Why don't you lay our spoiler policy on them? Okay. So our spoiler policy is that I have not read these books. Liz has read these books. So we will not spoil anything Past chapter six, because I want to remain unspoiled, that's half the fun of our podcast. Spoilers for A Song of Ice and Fire, completely on the table. For the record. (laughs) I realized last week we inadvertently spoiled something for A Game of Thrones. I mean, if you don't already know it, I can't believe you're listening to this podcast, but we did spoil something. We've spoiled lots of some things, probably. Not really. No? No, not too much. We we do a pretty good job of of trying to uh, to stay spoiler-free. Darth Vader is Luke's father. What? what? You can't say that. I'm sorry, God. My goodness. <laughs> Soylent Green is people. Ah. <laughs> can't stop. <laughs> Bruce Willis is dead at the end of the movie. At the, dead of, at the end of Die Hard? No, the sixth sense. Damn it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So we start in an interlude, correct? Correct. So we started this week with part two. The part is called Cross Purposes. And you know, I always have to read the poem at the beginning of the section. We respect poetry here at the Duke and Duchess podcast. It's my fave. So it's a continuation of the poem, The Great Hunt. Robert Frost? Carl Sandburg. Ah, Carl Sandburg. That's right. I almost said Carl Sagan. It would have been so embarrassing. <laughs> Carl if Sandburg I'd done has that. has an amazing chain of chicken joints all throughout the South. <laughs> That's Colonel Sanders. No, 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 no. <laughs> That's somebody different. <laughs> so the poem. The poem. Yeah. It goes like this. When the roses flash to the sunset, reels to the rack and the twist, and the rose is a red bygone, when the face I love is going, and the gate to the end shall clang, and it's no use to beckon or say so long, maybe I'll tell you then, some other time. We were laying in bed the other night, and I was, it was really late, I was falling asleep, and drifting off and I didn't wake up to talk to you about it but as I was falling asleep the last thing I heard was you going no (laughs) and I was like yes (laughs) got him so I've been just I I I wanted to wait till we were on the podcast but I'm dying to ask your impressions of this section overall 
in, in a brief summary statement, what did you think? Okay. Here's my impression of this section overall. That's it. Okay. All right. Actually, when I was um, when I was saying no, that wasn't even the end. I thought it was the end. Yeah. No, that's a part that we'll get something to later. else. Yeah. 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 But you know why I thought that, right? Oh, I definitely understand. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, but the ending's great. It's so great. It's so good. The ending of this section was phenomenal. This was one of the best parts of the book. Not overall, but that we've read so far. Yeah, I was ve- I I've very impressed. It, In my opinion, these chapters have been the best chapters we've read in the series for like the middle of the book, like not, you know, like the exciting conclusion of the lies of Locke Lamora, you know, but like just kind of smack in the middle of the book set up chapters. These are the best ones we've read so far, in my opinion. Yeah. So we started off this section with the interlude called Striking Sparks. It's another flashback to the teenage years. And we open with Locke having a raunchy dream about Sabatha. Oh, goodness. So what did you think of that? So... You know, it took me about two paragraphs to be like, oh, thank God, this is a... A dream. This is a dream, you know? Because I was like, no, 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 no. We're not going... (laughs) We're not going there, are we? Please tell me we're not going there, you know? That relationship had not earned that. Her slipping in to his room with no tunic and only a breech clout. Yeah. What the hell's a breech clout, by the way? It's fantasy underwear. It's not a breech cloth? fantasy underwear but underwear they wear in fantasy books so it's got like the head of a dragon on it no it's like a like a yeah like they just tie a piece of cloth around their loins i guess i don't know that's a good question listeners can you google breech clout for us we are incapable (laughs) it's funnier if they do it we don't have the technology they need to learn for themselves yes exactly (laughs) Listen, if you give the man a breech clout. (laughs) Shut up. I was going to say that. (laughs) Anyway, Anyway, we open on Locke having a dream about Sabatha in her breech clout. It just gets funnier the more you say it. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder almost if it was a typo and it was supposed to be, you know, breech cloth, but... I don't even know if it is breech cloth. Now I have to look. I suspect that it's not, but it's funnier that way. It no, is. Don't funny. look it up. Don't look it up. Don't listen, ruin it for so, you. Yeah. So listen, we've had a couple of pretty funny moments in this podcast based entirely on the fact that um, we misunderstood the word that was said. For instance, Gordo the Elder. <laughs> Gordo the Elder. <laughs> classic. Classic Gordo. Also, one of my favorite, Cockswallop. That's a real word, isn't it? No, the correct word is cod swallow. Oh, it's not nearly it, as funny. No, it's not. It's like Come the on, British equivalent people. of hogwash. Get your shit together. It's like the old-timey British equivalent of hogwash. Uh, Cock swallow is much funnier. Way, way funnier. <laughs> so we're sticking with breech clout. Yeah, absolutely. Okay? Yeah. All right. If Good. we If we find a funnier way to say a word, that's what the word becomes. Uh, 
given, granted, absolutely. You know, I don't care what it is. So Sabbath is in her breech clout in the dream. But before the dream reaches its exciting conclusion, Locke wakes up in a humorous tangle of blankets, falls out of his cot. And apparently falls onto his penis. Yes, yes, that was a detail I wasn't going to mention, but it is there in the book. I mean, as a man, I don't feel like I can ignore that. (laughs) I cannot, for the life of me, imagine how freaking painful that would be. (laughs) That would be terrible. Oh my God, horrifically painful. And his so-called friends have not an ounce of sympathy for him. No, they pretty much rag on him. In fact, one of the Sansas comes into the rooms and says, what's so hard about sleeping on a cot like a normal person, you fucking spastic dog? (laughs) Which, by the way, if I was his roommate, I would do the same thing. Absolutely. So we can see that we've jumped ahead a few years. It's the 78th year of Priva, Lady of the Red Madness, and everything is absolutely screwed up to hell. Oh, but nobody likes teenagers. They don't. Come on. They really don't. This is, uh, it can't be good. They're awful. All of them. I was awful when I was a teenager. I, Were you awful? I was awful when as I was a teenager. teenager. Absolutely. I think I would have thought you were cute if we'd known each other as teenagers. But you would have been awful. Oh, absolutely. So, they're all these awful teenagers, they're trapped in a elder glass burrow together, and there's lots of tension. We move on to a scene where Locke and Sabatha are sparring under Jean's tutelage. You remember this scene? Oh, very well. You have done an excellent job of making these sections where the last couple of sections we've had like foreshadowing in the beginning that really has a very strong tie in to what's at the end. You know, and maybe I'm giving you credit because. I, I like you and we live together. Maybe it's because Scott <laughs> Scott Lynch does a good job of leading in from one chapter to the next. But what's happening here in this interlude where he just absolutely can't, he's completely incompetent around her. He's useless. Completely useless. He's only slightly better, arguably not better at all, at the end of the section. I think he's better. We'll talk about that later. When we get there. When we get there. So, yes, Locke and Sabbath are are sparring, and there's so much tension, primarily because Locke is useless around Sabbath. And she's kind of pissed off at him for that. She thinks he's messing with her. Later, when uh, Jean and Locke are, are trying to talk about the situation, Jean says, basically, uh, you you would stand there and let her slap you into paste just for the sake of being in the same room with her. And it's not endearing. <laughs> No, not at all. What, so here's what I don't quite understand, or here's here's some of the stuff that was going through my head. We've always known that Locke has no real skills when it comes to fighting. And we do not really know what Sabbath's skills are when it comes to fighting. So as I'm reading this, I'm like, maybe she's just that much better than him. But it's the way Jean calls him out. That leads me to believe that's not the case. Correct. I think he and Sabbath both call him out and say, "What? What's? I think especially that day, he's just kind of standing there like a dummy." In fact, Jean at one point says, 
Let's try a new exercise. Locke, you stand there with your hands at your sides. Sabatha, you hit him until you get tired. Yeah. <laughs> Basically. I laughed at that part. Yeah. <laughs> because he's just being, because of the experience of this dream and him not being sure whether Sabatha Dude, knows about it. Maybe he's in pain because he fell on his erect <laughs> dick. Cut a brother some slack, man. Like, man, I probably would walk around in a daze, too. I broke my damn penis. Uh, would you let a hit a chick hit you with a baton repeatedly? As long as it wasn't anywhere in this general vicinity. <laughs> you can't see, but I'm making a large circle He's in making the middle a of my circle. body. It, yeah. Yes, he is. So, um, Locke is useless. Sabbath is pissed off about that. Jean is pissed off at Sabbath because she is beating the hell out of Locke. More so than she needs to. And Sabatha is pissed at John for always jumping to Locke's defense and not letting him stand up for himself, as she says. It's almost like these are teenagers who spend too much time together. It's almost like that. One thing I thought was interesting toward the end of this, you know, Locke's standing there. So it's it's Sabatha's. John is saying, Sabatha, you need to calm down. And Sabbath is being like, no, he needs to ask for quarter and you need to stop defending him because he needs to be able to stand up for himself. And Locke is going like, hey, I'm good. I'm right here. Come on, hit me some more. Pay attention to me. Maybe he's just a sadist or a masochist. I'm sorry. And this is interesting because Sabatha says, when will you learn that refusing to admit that you've lost isn't the same as winning? And I thought that was interesting because we kind of puts the finger on the fundamental difference between these characters Mm -hmm. is that Sabatha wants to win. That's the most important thing to her. And with Locke, she kind of can't because Locke doesn't care about winning. Yeah. And he has that thing where he says when Sabatha, quote, gets caught, but it's not really that thing. Right. He doesn't say, I want to win. I hadn't really picked up on this until until now. He just says, I don't want to lose. I'm never going to lose again. Exactly. And Sabatha, in the next interlude, when they're you know, going, and he ends up being the one who gets elected as the priest, she's like, I want to win. You know, And you see this sort of play out here. Exactly. So we're really setting up you know, we know that we've got kind of this star-crossed love dynamic between these two characters, at least on Locke's part. But I, what I really like is that Scott Lynch is already really setting up, okay, what are the the things going to be that are keeping them apart? What are the, what is the conflict in the relationship going to be? Yeah. You can tell even at this point that it's going to be something that's, that's complex and well thought out. Well, they already have a pretty complex relationship and there are their personalities are quite distinctly different. And Sabatha has really spent relatively little time on screen. Right. And we find out that this summer is one of the first that they have spent significant amounts of time, all of the gentleman bastards together, um, no one being on apprenticeships for several months. And, um, it's not going well. Pretty much Chains is sick of their shit. And he calls them all together and lays into them pretty much. And he, he tells them that he wants a vacation from them. Yeah. He says, I'm going on vacation. They say, where are you going? He goes, nowhere. I need a vacation from you. You're all going somewhere. Which, 
I mean, I say in four or five years, we get one of those VW buses. Uh, I think we paint it with some flowers on the side. Uh, we give we give the kids like fifty bucks, and we say, "Get lost, like see who comes back." Make it a dragon on the side of the bus, and it's a deal. Sweet, <laughs> I can make that happen. This was kind of a deep section for me because as Change is talking to his kids and they start complaining about what he wants them to do and he starts to really lay into them and he talks about something we've talked about in the podcast in the previous books about the disparity between the way the right people in Kamor live and the way that they should be living according to the principles of the unnamed 13th. Mm-hmm. So we talk about th- this whole concept of spirituality among thieves and how Chains is one of the few characters in these books who really has a true moral compass and that he believes that he is living righteously and he is living the way that he thinks really thinks he's supposed to live according to the mandates of his God. Mm -hmm. So this is what he says to them as they start complaining. He's like, shut up. You don't understand what you have, what you've been given. He says three, you know, thieves prosper night by night, but there's nothing for them when the lean times come. There's no justice, no true fellowship, just vows in the darkness. Because all of the right people of Kamor are paying lip service to the unnamed 13th, but they're not really living the mandates. Yeah, is it exactly. It's just like I tell my kids all the time, put the damn milk away. You don't know freaking lucky you are. Exactly. That's like, exactly what he says. Like, not in quite those words. Like, pick up your goddamn iPad. When I was your age, I didn't even have an Atari 2600. For fuck's sake, right? show some gratitude. <laughs> and just like that, Shane says, you've got the chance to live in real trust and fellowship, to be thieves as the gods intended, scourging the swells and living true to yourselves. But he sees his kids getting away from that. And so. He's sending them all to Aspara to become actors. And he, he wants to put them to the test. So he gives them basically, here's a bag of money. You have two weeks to get to Aspara. Here's when there's a wagon train leaving. It's up to you to get there. And if, you, if you're not going to do that, then you're out of the gang. I don't ever want to see you again. And I'm telling you, Chains is a gold mine of parenting tips. Absolutely. Because you know what he said? When they start complaining, he says, I don't want to spend the rest of the day interrupting your question. So I'm going to temporarily forget how to make words come out of my mouth. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, why haven't I done that? <laughs> I'm doing that tomorrow. Yeah. Looking for an excuse. So Chains is the kind of parent that nowadays we would call a free range parent. Indeed. He's the kind who's like, look, you're three and a half years old. <laughs> Walk your damn self to the park. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and wear the shark tooth around your neck as a reminder that I could kill you anytime I wanted and nobody would say anything about it. Listen, I'm doing what's right by you. Exactly. Going to make you strong. So... The the gang all decides that they're they're going to do this. Of course, nobody's going to leave the gang. So the next couple sections are them making their plans, 
They're all still kind of annoyed with each other. It's funny because Sabatha is annoyed that Locke and Jean always pick names that start with L and J. And then Callow decides he wants to be beef wit small cock. And he and Galdo. So this is interesting. Cowhead small penis. Like. Exactly. (laughs) And the the last name that they actually pick ends up being Asino. (laughs) Say it again. Asino. Asino. It's funny because it has the word ass in it. Oh, we love words with the with the ass sound in them. It's funny. We love those words. We do. So, oh, our humor is so seventh grade. I mean, seventh grade is pushing it. (laughs) I think it's fifth grade, honestly. (laughs) And and let's talk about Calo and Galdo in these flashbacks because they are different from the childhood Calo and Galdo we've seen before. Mm Mm-hmm. In previous flashbacks, the twins are always, they're always fighting, but they also, you know, speak in unison. They're, they seem to, um, they like to play pranks on other people. They, they get along. Well, also a lot of their fighting is play fighting too. Exactly. And in this flashback, we see them not getting along. One of them has shaved his head really at odds with each other. Yeah, they're so, trying to distinguish themselves from one another. Exactly. And and I just really liked that touch. It it adds depth to the characters. Mm-hmm. The night before they leave, they, they get themselves set up on this wagon train. Locke takes a minute to be alone with Sabatha, and they have the first of a couple of talks about what's going on. So you rolled your eyes at that part. What? Well, I think it's the... It's the one later where they get a little bit deeper into it that I have some opinions, so so we'll we'll roll on. Okay. So basically, there's all this tension. Um, Sabatha, though, apologizes. She says, you know, I'm just kind of a hedgehog right now. I feel like all prickly towards everyone. Locke right away is like, you would not. I don't think of you as a hedgehog. Oh, you could never be a hedgehog. And I like this because she just goes... It's interesting that I'm talking about my own feelings and you seem to think that what I'm after is some kind of reassurance concerning your perceptions. So Locke is like, well, danged if I do, danged if I don't, basically. No, she's right. She is absolutely right. She's absolutely That was his reaction. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, but I I just loved that because I, I don't know, I... I just love this whole interaction between them. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's definitely throughout this, all these interludes in this section, there's kind of an arc. Arc's not the good word. There's a thread running through it of her trying to say, you're not treating me like an equal. And your infatuation is not with who I am. It's with who you think I am. Yes, and I, and I love that because we don't get that in fantasy novels a lot. The love interest is kind of we don't we don't get that in in most literature a lot. Yeah, I mean it it, it happens. Yeah. but you know this is a I'm, I have to say, Sabatha so far so far one of my favorite female characters in fantasy. Yeah, I really dig Sabatha, and it's it's because of, of lines like this, you know, when Locke points out that he's like, look, what what's going on between us? There's always been this kind of fog. I don't, I, I want to know what, 
what I can do to get rid of this tension between us. And she says, why do you assume that it's something that you've done and can like magically undo at will? I'm not an arithmetic problem for you to solve. And she goes on to tell him that she does like him. She says, you can be clever, you can be enterprising, you're charming, rarely all three of those things at once. Much like our podcast. Exactly. Rarely all three of those things at once. Exactly. (laughs) And right away, he's like, I feel the same way about you. I, I like you with no qualifications, he says. And I love this. She says, nobody admires someone without qualification. If they do, they're after an image, not a person. Yeah. And I was like, boom. He is... He is the redheaded acoustic guitar playing toxic nice guy. I saw a really great video posted by someone talking about the difference between nice guys and mm. good guys. Uh yeah, the quote nice guy. Nice guy, air quotes. Yeah, yeah. And good guys. Yeah. And about how quote nice guys are only nice because they want something. Yeah. And once they don't get what they want, all of a sudden they turn mean and bitter and resentful versus being actually nice because it's the right thing to do. Yeah. I do not see Locke that way. I think that he is, I think that he's a good guy. I think he acts rightly and because it's the right thing to do. Well, I would say- I think he's an mm -hmm. ass around Sabbatha. Well, nobody is an archetype holy right right no, nobody full well i shouldn't say that no there are plenty of people who do fully embrace that or, or embody that but for the most part most people don't fit entirely into you know one camp or the other i think there's a lot of that sort of toxic nice guy with jean in his relationship with sabatha it's not mean with Locke. i'm sorry yeah. Locke in his relationship with sabatha who did i say jean Oh, no, sorry. Um, so Locke and his relationship with Sabbath. I think there's a little bit of that because it's not that he he's not becoming an asshole when he gets rebuffed, but he is behaving in a way to get something from her. And he's also in love with something that's not necessarily who she is. He's in love with what he perceives of her. Now, whether here's the other part of it, he's young. Like when I was 16 years old, I did a lot of that same shit too. Yeah. I mean, I definitely would agree with the second part of what you said in that he's in love with an idea of her because anytime that you are completely oblivious to someone's faults and willing to let them be abusive towards you without ever standing up for yourself, that's not, Obviously, that's not love. That's infatuation. Yeah. And that's less about that person than what you want from that person. Yeah, correct. Yeah, exactly. And I I think that's absolutely true. I don't see the manipulative aspect of the, quote, nice guy in Locke. Well, I don't think he's being fake. Right. And and that's where I think there's a difference. Right. Like, I don't see him. He's not treating Sabbatha nicely. You know, so he can bone down with her, but otherwise would be a dick to her. Right. And I he think would, that's the hallmark of the toxic nice guy. Okay. Well, by that definition, then no, he, he wouldn't fit it. But 
but I definitely think he has an idea about Sabatha, not who she is. But there's a danger in that because he's going to try to shove her into that hole. He's going to try to, you know, to make her what he thinks she is. Well, we'll see. That well, certainly it, does seem to be where things are heading yeah. at this point. Yeah. But that's where that interlude ends. And now we jump. Do you have anything else to say about that one? I think I've said enough. <laughs> We jump to chapter five, and this chapter is called the five-year game starting position. So we jump right the to- The chessboard is set. It's set. The pieces are on the table. <laughs> the foes stare each other down, a steely-eyed gaze. Any more? Your move, Duchess. Why are you so silly? Why would I not be silly? See, what you can't see that's going on. See, this is this makes outstanding audio content. What you can't see that's actually going on is every time she begins to try to talk, I act like I'm going to talk. It gives and me I, that eyebrow game. His eyebrow game is so serious. My eyebrow game's on point. <laughs> and because I interrupt her so much on the regular, she... She doesn't know what to do. <laughs> With just a twitch of his brow, he commands, I got you all psyched out. I'm going to kick your ass in this game of chess. Oh, okay. I'm good. <laughs> so Locke and John are reeling from the news that Sabatha is in Carthane. And they're just like, Locke is like, oh my gosh, I'm going to see Sabatha again. And and John is like, oh my gosh, we have to compete against Sabatha? Like, this is going to suck. <laughs> and she's got like a two-week head start. Oh yeah, they're fucked. <laughs> like, dang, we are screwed. And uh, then they say, well, maybe she's out of practice. And John says, maybe trained monkeys will crawl out of my ass and pour me a glass of Ostershallen brandy. Yeah, like monkeys will fly out of my butt. Right, exactly. Like, it's very Wayne's world. It, it kind of was. But with Ostershall and Brandy. Either way, they have no choice but to go on. They land in Carthane and we meet... girlfriend's a psycho hose beast. Sorry, go ahead. I've just got Wayne's World stuff running through my head now. I'm never going to stop a Wayne's World reference. Bring them on. (laughs) You know Wayne's World a lot better than I do, so... So we meet Nikoros, who is sort of their campaign manager guy, their main guy. And we learn that names are a funny thing in Carthane. Yeah, and I spent I spent a good portion of this section all wrapped up in my head building up this imaginary like set of predictions that were gonna happen because they had told Nikoros their names and I was like, Oh no, and this and he's gonna do that. And and I read through like, you know, two thirds of the section before I remembered, oh shit. They gave them fake names. That's not even their <laughs> that's names. Not their, that's not their goddamn names. <laughs> like, But it's interesting because apparently in Carthane, they don't give each other their names. You know, like we learned that the mages use what's called a gray name. So yeah, they have yeah. their, their given name, the name they think of when they think of themselves. Mm-hmm. They choose a gray name to tell other people because 
obviously if a mage has your name, they can like brainwash you and shit. So absolutely. Now we find out that the entire country has a gray name. Exactly. It's because just, they it, don't want the mages to basically use them as hand puppets. Of course, right? Nobody wants to be, well, some people want to be used as hand puppets, but they're weird. So it's just like... I mean, it depends on who's doing the puppeteering. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> Look, small hands, that's all, that's all I ask for. Very small hands. <laughs> it's just like your college dorm, your freshman year, right? Like, it's never like Jeff Smith. It's like... It's like, what's up with the woos? Going to be hanging out with beefy McWhatnuts, you know? And everybody's got a nickname. Oh, Monkey rub pants. it in. Go ahead. <laughs> I never got a college nickname. Where's the salt? Put it in my wound. <laughs> Come on. Everybody else had nicknames. Everyone else had nicknames. Hey, Liz. How hey, you doing? Hey, I gave you a nickname. <laughs> That's right. I forgot. 20 years too late, man. <laughs> <laughs> all right. you ever wanted out of this thing was a nickname degree schmagree where's my nickname <laughs> come on guys <laughs> oh okay back you're, to carthane well in in my phone you're you're duchess well that warms my heart right right down to the cockles i gotta say so I we learned that nickname Maybe on the other podcast. Oh, okay. Sorry. Sorry. I won't interrupt again. We learned that names are a funny thing in Carthane. And then we go shopping with Grandma. Oh, my God. It was. It was totally shopping with Grandma. God, Mom. Come on. Another (sighs) store. Christ. We we got to go to Macy's. We have to get another cart. Jesus. It's the only part of this section that was all that I I, I oh, skim through. Yeah, yeah th- okay. All and right. And then good. when I go through to take notes, I'm like, oh, I have to read this part. <sighs> it was a like, and, and now first we're gonna get daughter you. Morena, and we're gonna and measure thimbles. your inseam. Yeah. We're gonna measure your cuff. We're gonna measure your nose hair. Oh like, no! Just, now we need shoes. Oh gee. <laughs> oh, let's get some jewelry. Well, we jewelry need, shopping. Now really? we need winter shoes. For fuck's sake. We got lots of nice clothes. Let's move on. Yeah, that was rough. They could have just had the clothes in the wardrobe. It was a little rough. Yeah, just a little. A little bit. Ho- Sorry, rest of it we loved. I hope it comes back around. Or there's some reason for it. Shopping with Grandma. So yes, two sections of shopping. Yeah, this this chapter was a little rough, but the end was good. Well, for me, the shopping was a little slow, but then it was kind of fun to see Locke get to work. Yeah, that, and that, and that's what I mean. And he starts kind of getting into that character. He starts, you know, being Locke. I loved how he handled the, albeit somewhat obvious, spies inside the end. But, <laughs> but you, he's, he's starting to lay the pieces and lay the groundwork and, hey, you do this and that and change the locks and do this. We're going to hire this. Make sure you make copies of everything. And you're like, all right, here we go. We got mm-hmm. lock. He's doing it, you know. He's here to kick ass and demand lists. <laughs> and he's all out of lists. I want 14 scribes and three, three members of the Brute Squad. I'm like, I want someone to write lists for me. No, you would have to rewrite all the list because no scribe could do it the way you wanted it done. That's fair. Perhaps I'm getting a little too personal. <laughs> I mean, ouch, but that's fair. 
So, but yeah, but no. So I'm like, all right. So on one hand, as this goes on, and I, I don't know if I'm jumping ahead a little no, bit. No, you're good. But a- as this goes on, I'm like, all right, okay, we're starting to see him, and they're doing things that are smart. But on the other hand, they're getting their asses kicked at every turn. Pretty much. So they, they go in and they start setting up this security. They, you know, they tell Nicaros that I want you to expect that at any minute your office could burn down. So anything that's important, you've got to keep in a vault. And we've got to we've got to change the locks here. We've got to get um, some security here. But it's always too little, too late. You know, because kind she's of a already step behind. Yeah, she's already been there. Well, and she knows what they're going to do. She's she's you know, she has to do everything she can to slow them down and not let them get firmly planted. Exactly. And she's she's had people there waiting. You know, when they get to their, it's called Jostens. It's an inn. It's sort of going to be the seat of their power. There's some some men sitting there. And, and like, like you said, it was... It's like the weirdest Great Gatsby I've ever seen. Right? It was, it was humorous, though, that Locke realized that these three were spies. And the, the way that he outed them was to go over to them and just start insulting them. I mean, just insults I'm not even going to read on this podcast. Like, it... <laughs> really foul foul things and uh and the guy the man just stood there and just went well i i can't believe you're saying this what well, do you mean by this sir well, i never and, and finally they said yeah, we're going to take this to the master of the house and Locke says i am the master of the house and you know it and that's the only reason that you haven't either punched my teeth in or called me out for a formal duel because you are here to spy on me yeah and uh clever. It was pretty clever. I, we like seeing Locke now, of course, back the, in Locke form. Yeah. Now, of course, that's the obvious spies. spies. Exactly. But again, it's it's one step after another. Yeah. Sabatha has been, been ahead of them. They have their sort of opening day party. Their sort of main, their kind of um, election kickoff yeah. that gets immediately shut down by the magistrates for ostensibly because Justin, the owner of the business, didn't pay his liquor license fees. So when all of that comes out, after meeting someone with what, a, another character with a fantastic name. Who was that? The old man? Damned Superstition Dexa. Oh, the one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because she had to pick a gray name due to a damn superstition. Get it? Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. It's funny. <laughs> so after all this goes down. I'm not going to write you a love song. Exactly. Exactly. It was, we had a thread on our Facebook page about what songs make you think of characters. Well, that's what makes from me this think book, of and we need to put that one down. Damn superstitious Dexa. Mm-hmm. So the magistrate comes through and is like, "I'm sorry, we need to shut your party down." And Locke says, "Oh, Sabatha, you God's damned artist. Hello <laughs> to you too." And now, are we ready for the next interlude? Is that where we are now? Yes, the next interlude is called Bastards Abroad. And this is, it was in this interlude that I was like, no. This is this is where I started, like, the first two interludes, I'm like, okay, I like where this is going, blah, blah, blah. But, like, this interlude and the next chapter are where things get really good. Yes, indeed. So, the plot-wise, we have the young gentleman bastards on the road. And Sabatha is in a bad mood, but Locke is kind of nagging her. He wants to have this talk. He wants but, to have but, this but, talk. But, but but we want to talk. I, I my my respect for you ends where my penis does. Right. And she's kind of like, 
back off. And he's like, well, you're in a mood. And I love this line. She says, why is it that a boy can be as disagreeable when he as he pleases, but when a girl refuses to crap sunshine on command, the world mutters darkly about her moods? I just kind of like that. I was like, damn right, girl. And, you know, Lynch here, I think, hints really nicely about something that other writers, and, and we saw this kind of in Wise Man's Fear a little bit, put out there bluntly, that it's more difficult to be a woman in this world, and it's impacted this character. And I just like the subtle way that he puts that out there. I, there was, there's something that happens, and I'm frustrated that I can't recall what it was. There's something that happens in this section where I remarked that in this world that Scott Lynch has created, women have a much more equal footing than they do in just about any other yes. fantasy world. Now, typically, one of the things I always kind of enjoy about fantasy, one of the things I like about, like, George R. R. Martin, for instance, is that things aren't always egalitarian and, and, you know, like, there are these systemic problems that lead to real serious consequences, and it sometimes gets dark, like... I like that about fantasy. But Scott Lynch, and people will always say, I hear people say all the time, well, it's a fantasy world. You don't have to make it that way. It doesn't have to be so oppressive to women or so oppressive to this class or so oppressive. You could write a world that's not like that. And Scott Lynch does a pretty good job of writing a world that, for the most part, is relatively egalitarian in terms of men and women much more so than most any other fantasy world that you encounter. I would agree. And in fact, in the the previous chapter where Locke and Jean are setting up their security, I noticed Locke is telling Jean, you know, hire some, we need to hire some bodyguards. Yeah. And he said, I want like six or seven big, the biggest, baddest brutes you can find. And then I want you to find some women who can blend in and be like sneaky assassin types. Mm-hmm. So it's yeah. like fighters aren't just assumed to be men. Yeah. So that mm-hmm. is pretty cool. But he still addresses the difficulties that women have, particularly in the underworld. Yeah. Growing up as thieves. So Locke, you know, is attempting to be charming because he's not, maybe he's not trying to win, but he's also not going to admit that he's lost that's not in his nature. He's still trying to charm Sabatha and she asks him how he's is how is he going to be able to handle it if she says no like she did to Calo and Galdo. Yeah. And I mean basically they go back and forth and they talk about snails versus oysters and all that kind of thing. But No, but I I liked that point that she made. Like if you actually respect me and care about me, if you if you're my so-called friend then when i tell you i don't want your romantic advances you will be okay with that so our kids are really sick of me when this one song on radio disney comes on and it's called f-r-i-e-n-d-s i freaking hate radio disney okay but go ahead sorry have you heard this song yeah yeah i have okay so you know that it's basically this girl and this this guy keeps coming on to her and she keeps being like you're like my brother we're just friends but you've called me a thousand times blah 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 and every time this song comes on it comes on and the kids are like we know mom we know if a 
boy does not respect your boundaries, he's not your friend. Okay. Yeah, I mean. He's your stalker. Block him. Sorry, I get tired of that. And that's basically what Sabatha is saying here. You know, Calo and Galdo came on to me. I shut him down. And now we're, they never brought it up again. Mm -hmm. We're totally cool with each other. Other than they're really annoying. So she asks him, how is he going to be like that? And, and I think that at this point, we realize that she has some feelings for him. But she's overwhelmed by his feelings for her. I, that makes a little bit more sense. I hadn't thought of it that way, so I appreciate that perspective. At this point, I'm like, you go, girl. Right. And I'm also hoping, like, what I'm hoping for at this point is that she is like, you can go hike up a tree, I don't want anything to do with you, and that she stays true to that path, and they never get together and i'm like yes that's what i want and then like the next paragraph she's like well it's complicated and i was like oh come on (laughs) no just just tell him to get lost like it doesn't you don't have to be the love interest like to me that would i think that would have been really awesome if she was built up to be the love interest through all these freaking books, she's the love interest. And then you find out that this character who's been your protagonist, you've been along the ride. She's not the love interest at all. She doesn't want anything to do with him. Like to me, that would have been more interesting. So I was a little disappointed when she was like, well, it's complicated. So what I liked about that is that, she tells him, so she tells him that, that she, she has some feelings for him, but it's not that her feelings are complicated because she doesn't know what they are. It's that the situation is complicated that they are in and that there are things about him that she really likes. Mm -hmm. And I think we see that when, when Locke needs to step up into a leadership position, and I think he does at this point, because at some point in their conversation, Callow and Galdo come over and they've got this really stupid plan. Yeah. They're going to go con some villagers out of money. And Locke right away drops the, the sort of simpering idiot. And he's like, okay, no, that's a terrible idea. And this is why. And I'm in charge now. Yeah. So we see this like, this person that Sabbath is attracted to, but at the same time, you know, after the twins leave, she's, she's also frustrated by that because what she says to him is, so years ago, I was the oldest child in a small gang. I was sent away by my master to train in dancing and manners. And when I returned, I found that a younger child had taken my place. So she really struggles with that. And we saw that in a previous interlude when Locke was chosen to be an apprentice to the priesthood, which is the one thing she wanted because for her that symbolized being the best, the best thief. And so here we see this fundamental problem with these characters who are so different. She who achieves what she does by meticulous hard work and planning and Locke who seemingly stumbles into everything and naturally just accepts that he's going to be the best because of his natural gifts, but doesn't put that much work into it as a privilege. Exactly. And so on one hand, she likes those things about him. On the other hand, it drives her crazy and it reminds her of the things that 
she feels have been taken away from her. They argue in particular about Jean, and that seems to be a sticking point that she says, he says, you know, Jean is your friend too. And she says, but he's your particular friend. You know, Kahlo and Galdo, we see in this interaction, they come over with this plan and Sabbath is like, no, that's a terrible plan. Don't do that. And they blow her off. And Locke says the exact same thing. And they're like, yeah, you're right. It's a terrible plan. Yeah. And I notice in this section too, twice she mentions his apprentice priesthood and both times stumbles over the words. Both times actually almost can't get them out. So you can tell she's really upset about that. Well, and that's another thing that sort of makes this character interesting is that she seems to be so good at so many things. And she says things that we want to hear. We're like, yes, you know, you put him in his place. And yeah, he he is being an idiot. But she also has this sort of, I'm going to say negative side, where she has some serious issues with jealousy and she can't get over some of the things that he's gotten that she feels like she deserved. I would agree with that. And I think we see Locke being blind to some of her some of her faults, but we definitely see her faults laid out there. Yeah. And I like that, you know. In the previous interlude, we had John mentioning that she's got a she's got a temper and she's got kind of a nasty streak. She's also a perfectionist. And Locke was like, well, no, more than any of the rest of us, you know, but but she definitely has some flaws. That- well, and she can't see that there was a reason why he was chosen to be the apprentice priest. At this age, it may not be as apparent but when they're adults, it should be pretty apparent why he was chosen over her. But even later, she still can't get over it. Exactly. You know, and, and we talked before about why was he chosen over her? And I think we see again and again that, you know, for a priest of the 13th, the first mandate is that all thieves prosper. And we see Sabatha as being more about being out for herself. Correct. And, and yeah. Locke really, I don't see Sabatha, if she had been dangling over the side of a cliff and some idiot highwayman came over and was like, I'm going to kill you now. Yeah. And then she had him in her grip. I don't see her being like, well, you're a fellow thief, so I'm going to save your life now. Yeah, absolutely. I don't see her doing that. No. So that's where we're left with this conversation. But for me, this is just so, just such an interesting and a complex relationship. And I really do get into it. Um you know, there's nothing that I hate more in a book, and, and we see it a lot in fantasy novels, than than a relationship going on the rocks just because the characters won't talk to each other or misunderstandings happening just because of, like, almost a willful lack of communication. But it's like the author just needed a reason for them to not be able to be together, but they couldn't think of a good reason, so... yeah. And that is not what we get here. No, and I love that. I love it. We spent so much time talking about Quoth and Denna. And how much of that time, and one of the things that was so frustrating about that is you knew they were both into each other, but they just couldn't fucking say it. Like Right, and like, like for a couple chapters, you're like, okay, and then, you know, whole book in, you're like, all right, 
by the end of the whole second book, you're like, God damn it. Jesus, you too, for fuck's sake. Well, and I think part of that too is that, you know, I I think a lot about Denna versus Sabatha, and I I love Sabatha. I can't stand Denna. But I think part of that is, is, is we get a lot more from Sabatha about where she's at emotionally, what what her issues are, what, you know, and Denna is just nothing. So we, you know, her actions just seem shallow and capricious, you know, even though it's hinted at that, oh, she must have had a very hard life. Oh, you know, everyone's always trying to grab onto her and stuff, but we don't actually get her explaining anything or talking about her feelings or they don't, they don't talk about anything. Well, it's, it's difficult because Denna still doesn't really trust Quoth, and so she's not going to. It's not like these characters who have grown up together, and Sabatha really, like, Locke is such a goddamn puppy dog that, like, she kind of has to be like, fuck, like, she has to be, to tell him, because mm-hmm. he won't fucking leave her alone, you know, right. like, Quoth and Denna are constantly playing coy with one another, so I don't think it's... To me, it's not as clear-cut as Patrick Rothfuss isn't as good as Scott Lynch at writing this stuff, or that Sabbath is a better character than Denna. I don't think it's as clear-cut as that. I do like Sabbath better as a character, and I do like what Scott Lynch is doing with these characters a lot. Like, I'm really... I really like that relationship, but I don't want to put it in a way that is taking away from what Patrick Rothfuss is doing, because I think he's doing it for a reason. Well, I would agree with that. Um, I I would say that it's very difficult to write a complex and sympathetic star-crossed lover relationship without being trite. And I would say that it is very rarely, if ever, done well. And this is one of the instances where I think that it is. I, in I a way that, that. That, I can, that I can get into it, and it makes me think about the characters. It makes me think about the relationships I've had in my life and relationships of others that I've known. It makes me think versus just being like, oh, gosh, more star-crossed bullshit again. You know, honestly. And, and, and we did... T- spend a lot of wise man's fear going oh jesus right so i i do believe that's going to pay off certainly not to take away from absolutely one of my favorite books ever for sure but in this case and coming right off of reading king killer and going into this series it is so refreshing to again have these characters who just like just talk about their feelings already but you know then it's not like that makes everything better but at least you understand, they all understand where they're coming from. Yeah, I don't know. I, I just like that emotional yeah. intelligence. Yeah, I enjoyed this quite a lot. Anywho, back to the book. Well, we were talking about the book, but back to the plot of the book. By the way, the play they are doing, they are traveling to Aspara to do, is the titular Republic of Thieves. Say it again. Titular. Boom! <laughs> So there's a fun little scene where they're talking about the play and Sabatha was talking about how she likes the names in the play because they all have titles. So she wants a nickname too. I feel you, girl. She's talking about how she wants some to be a thief, like a famous thief with a grand title. Like, like I want to be 
the rose of the marrows. <laughs> and so the others tease that if she's the rose, then Locke will have to become the thorn of Camor. Ah. Just, just kind of funny. Ah. So actually, can I can I take us back yeah. just a little bit? So this at the end of their little, before we get to this part here, there's a line that Locke says, and I want to read it real quick because it's going to tie into my prediction later. They're going back and forth, and he says, Sabbath, I don't remember my own father, and other than a single memory of of sewing needles, my mother is as much a mystery. I don't remember where I was born or the Catch Fire Plague or how I survived it or anything that I did before the thief maker bought me from the City Watch. And that ties into my prediction later, so I wanted to bring it up here. Now, resume. Okay. Back to the... Game on. Game on. So they get to Aspara and they find their way to Gloriano's Inn where supposedly Jasmer Moncrane and his troop of players resides. So Jasmer Moncrane is an old friend of Chains and Chains arranged to have them all be actors in his acting company. Mm-hmm. Basically. They show up there to find a drunk old dude spouting a soliloquy and who he then pukes on jean jean oh i slipped up he's still jean in my head you guys um they meet the other players and and it's quite a scene but mon crane apparently has been locked up for punching a nobleman we like people who punch noblemen we're down with it the rich remember that's right listen all last weekend was the royal wedding, the royal wedding, the royal wedding. If I see one of those goddamn princes, I'm going to punch him in his stupid jaw. I can say that because it's never going to happen. <laughs> I'm sure they're good people, but fuck them. We got a lot of Brits that are listening, babe. <laughs> Might have offended them. We've already offended the entire listen, country of Sweden, okay? Listen, they want to punch Prince Harry in the jaw just like I do. Oh, don't mess with Harry. Come on, he's the nice one. Oh, is he? I don't know. <laughs> one of them's a real I'm Chad. I'm just saying, I don't know. One of them's a real Chad. <laughs> Come on, they would have to be. No, they seem lovely. Actually, I'm just kidding. I think they're fine. Prince I don't know how Harry many countries like, in Europe we're going to have left, okay? <laughs> I'm just saying. Prince Harry likes to go to the darts. There you go. That's a man of the people. Can't be that bad. Salt of the earth. Exactly. You know he's a Raymond Van Barneveld fan. Probably. Well, you know. It'd have to be. We're we're not getting into darts jokes here. <laughs> no. That's too far down the rabbit. That's too far down the rabbit hole. Look, even I I know better than that, okay? So chapter five is called Change of Venue. We are back at Justin's. And I spent this whole chapter reading through it the first time being like, they're going to get kicked out of Justin's. They're going to get kicked out of Justin's. Change of venue. Change. When are they? They're not getting kicked out of Justin's? What? The, when are they going to get changed of venue? And then I got to the end. I was like, oh. oh. <laughs> So we're back at Justin's. Locke has temporarily taken care of the liquor license BS by um, lying through his teeth. He basically comes down and is like, don't you know the by code 472 of the 
you know, Carthani, blah, 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 and, and basically blusters his way through and they, they don't shut them down immediately. But Sabatha strikes back by having Nikoros's office fumigated and they all head to the magistrate's court to try and find a permanent solution. So they, they go, they bribe a whole bunch of people to make sure that this kind of mess isn't going to happen again. Yeah, it's just all this back and forth game. Back and forth, back and forth. But they're always one step behind Sabatha, cleaning always. up the mess that she just made for them. At some point, they collide with a middle-aged woman. Yeah, and I remember reading this, and I'm like, I'm like, this is gonna, this is gonna be something. Like when I'm reading through it the first time, I'm like, I don't know what it is. And then they just sort of go off their separate ways, and he checks his pockets, and I'm like, I don't know how this is gonna end, but. Keep an eye on that. Somehow that, you know, lady's going to come back around. I didn't have to wait long. They run in to do some errands. They go shopping with Grandma one more time. They come out, and it's, you know, the guards, and she's there, and he stole my purse, and he reaches down and realizes there's a purse. And they go through this hilarious, you know, interlude <laughs> of John's like, well, how do I get out of this? Or uh, Locke, rather, is like, how do I get out of this? So he does what he always does. <laughs> He fakes being sick or throwing a fit, you know, and he has a, you know, he collapses on the ground and then he bounces and stumbles around and he ends up putting the purse back in her pocket. But and not just her purse. He stumbles into a constable, steals yeah. his purse and then plants both purses back on the lady. Yeah. <laughs> and so this whole thing goes, they end up, you know, frame, quote, framing her. They haul her off. And that's when they realize, oh, shit, she slipped them a. A note. A note. And in the note, she goes by the name that she's been using, the fake name she's been using in all the interludes as a way. Verana Galante. That's right. As a way of saying, hey, assholes, it's me. And we're like, damn it, that was Sabbath the whole time? Mm -hmm. Man, that's like some Eddie Murphy, Arsenio Hall level right? like shit right there. Yeah, because like, she was up in their faces and they did not, they did not recognize her. Recognize her, yeah. And... She wants to have a meeting. Bum, bum, bum. And, and I'm like, so on one hand, I'm like, this is a bad idea. On the other hand, I'm like, well, of course they're going to. I mean, it was said by the Bonds mages that they could have this meeting. One of the things that we skipped, but we're we're taking a long time to get through this, so we'll just briefly address it. In the bank... There was a, or is it coming up and I haven't? No, we, we did skip it. Okay. Yeah. In the bank, there was a, one of the Bonds Magis who just sort of blinked into existence and really started fucking with Locke and was like, look, you're going to get together. It's okay if you get together. If you two conspire against us, I'll kill everybody you fucking know in front of you. Like, you know, like. No, he threatens to kill Sabatha. Yeah, I'll kill her if you. If you two collude, you know, you're going to play this fucking game. Right. And still to me, I'm like, these fuckers, why do they care so much? Like, there's more to this than this stupid fucking election. I mean, that didn't occur to me because, you know, Patience described it as being, she said, some people play handball, some people play catch the Duke and like. I know how excited people get about football. And like, I, I get it. They don't have iPhones. I get it. Exactly. exactly. They need shit to do. They're <laughs> bored. But I don't, 
Like this whole thing of them inviting them there, this is not about the fucking election. Like, I don't know what the bigger picture is, Mm -hmm. but they wanted him there. They wanted the gentleman back. They wanted them there for some reason that doesn't have anything to do with this fucking election. All right. I don't know what it is. (laughs) But anyway, so now they want to meet. And from the moment that Locke realizes it's Sabatha, he becomes just like, you know, he's standing there with a wooden sword in his hand, completely fucking useless. It's a blithering idiot. Total blithering idiot. And the Locke we saw running around and barking orders, even though he was a little bit behind the game, but the competent, steadfast <laughs> Locke Lamora is fucking gone. <laughs> See you later, Locke. Like a fucking ghost in the night. Yes, the next three sections of this chapter are basically Locke primping and Jean roasting him for being an idiot. (laughs) You're an idiot. (laughs) (laughs) One of my favorites was quit making a yammering twit out of yourself. But my very favorite is in there in the carriage and he's been three sections of him tying and retying his cravat and fussing over his clothes and, uh, and and Jean just says, I am not taking a quarter of an hour to get out of the carriage. It's <laughs> out the door on your feet or out the window on your head. Think fast. <laughs> That's pretty funny. That's what I say to my kids every time we get in the car. <sighs> we get in the goddamn God. car. <laughs> get in the car. Just go right to the car. Why do you have to walk in a circle around the yard first? Yeah. Just walk to the car. Why are you chasing a squirrel? And- Why are you put that goddamn squirrel down? There is one puddle in the yard. They have to go stand in it first. For fuck's sake. Maybe there's some boy at school that they're really nervous about seeing. I swear, our neighbors think I'm a psycho. Because <laughs> the only time they see me is when is in the, the two minutes that it takes me to get from the front door to the car with our children. And I swear, I have to be a psychopath to get them into the car. There is no <laughs> other way. Lock the door. Get in the car. Get no, just get, just get, get in the car. Get, please, just get in the car. Thank you all for the flower. You. Get in the goddamn car. <laughs> Why are your shoes off already? <laughs> no, I don't need you to check the mail. Just get the goddamn car. Who <laughs> sidebar? But yes, that's what it's like. There's a nice little moment here too, when they're on their way out of the door of. Justin's and Nicaros comes up and he's asking them questions and Locke is like Bleh. and um Jean takes it says the weight of confidence and authority that Locke lets slip. Jean just kind of steps in there. Yeah. And it's so it's just so cool to see how these characters work together and how when they even began this gig, they were like, Okay, what are we gonna play? Okay, you're the you're the brute, I'm the I'm the weasel. Mm-hmm. You know, but we see that that's not because Jean couldn't be the mastermind. Yeah. He knows what to say. Well. But he's playing a part. Oh, I take issue with that. But, well, not that he could be the mastermind as well as Locke, but well, he holds back on being the one in command, the one barking orders. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I, and I appreciate, like, the point you're trying to make is the way they work together. It, it's all part of a show. Cur- yeah. However, here's the problem I have. So where we, you know, they get out of the wagon. Where do they get out of the wagon? They get out of the wagon at Sabatha's version of 
Jostens, right? right. So it, this is her lair, right? And I'm thinking, why are you delivering yourself? You're deli- like, like I get that Locke is completely lost all fucking faculty, right? Because he's stupid around Sabatha, but there's no excuse for Jean to walk in there. And we can tell that Jean is uncomfortable the whole time. Yeah, he's not. Maybe he just knows he's not going to stop Locke from doing it. I think he pretty much knows that Locke is going. And he's either going there by himself. Either Sabbath is going to get Locke by himself or he's going to be there. Because we see, so the, so the meeting happens. They they go in and she, they're, they're all in the same, they're in the same room together. Yeah. Finally. And... You know, Locke is like, oh, Sabatha. And her and hair is not dyed. Her hair is red. Strategic decision. Strategically red. That's a strategic ginger right there. That's right. <laughs> and Sabatha. Like General Patton. Is, is trying to be, is doing the friendly thing, you know, and Jean isn't really having any of it. You know, she approaches him, tries to shake, tries to hug him. He shakes her hand. And she's like, what are we, business acquaintances? We grew yeah. <laughs> up together. And she goes to hug him. And he pats his pockets down to make sure she didn't mess with anything and doesn't bother to smile to like, like he's, he's not making nice. He's in the game, but he still fucking walked in there. And he that did. was stupid. It was. But again, like we said, I think he knew that Locke was going in there one way or another. I don't know that I can, I don't know that I can forgive him that. It, it clearly, like... They spelled out rules like you can't fuck with people, but by the way, people can can fuck fuck with you. You You can be kidnapped. You can be thrown in a goddamn box. If here's the other kicker too, and this is why Sabatha should win this game, right? Because if Sabatha had come to them and showed up in Jostens, they would be stupid to let her leave. Mm Mm-hmm. But I guarantee you, they would. And this is why the Lannisters always win. Right? Clearly, they've never heard the reigns of Castamir. Clearly, Sabatha's a Lannister. I never thought of that before, but it's absolutely true. She's definitely a goddamn Lannister. Absolutely. And I love it. Jean is a Targaryen. Okay. All right. Or a Baratheon. Yeah, he's a Baratheon. Yeah, you're right. He's a Baratheon. Yeah, because not all Bar- he's he's like Robert Baratheon physically, and he's like Renly Baratheon intellectually. Yeah, I agree. Maybe Locke is a Targaryen. He's kind of skinny and weasley. Reminds me of Egg a little bit. He kind of does, and he's sort of got that scion sort of chosen leader thing yeah i do think there's a little bit of a um i do think there's a little bit of a messiah thing going on yep with this character i mean he's not paul atreides right but i think there's more going on to mr lamora than is apparent yeah he's daenerys targaryen he might be with better tits (laughs) hey daenerys targaryen's tits are glorious okay I me- that's what I meant. I sorry. She has, she has better tits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not as good tits. Yeah, yeah. All right. 
Well, let's break down the meeting a little bit because I feel like there's a lot to get into here. Yeah. So I one thing I thought was interesting is one of the first things she says to him is, take my hand. And rather than just like, he just kind of grabs her hand. She guides his fingers. So they're doing the the thief's handshake the mm-hmm. um, that we saw at the orphan's moon ceremony. Ah, yeah, yeah, okay. That when they first were children and they made their first offering and, you know, once a year they have this kind of holy night to the unnamed 13th and it's sort of the thief's salute to each other, which is palm to palm. So she guides his hand like that. And I think that's like kind of a reminder that, hey, we're we're on the same team ultimately. We're, we're both thieves and, and initiates of the same God. Yeah. It's very skillful. We see her just kind of luring them in. So yeah, Jean is not really not having it, but they, you know, they talk for a few minutes and um, she asks to be alone with Locke. And Jean really doesn't want to, but she points out, like you said, that, you know what, once you walk through these doors, what? I could do you, whatever I want anyway. Yeah, I could do whatever I want. She says, I could have 20 armed men crouched in the next room. Like, what? Why, why would I be asking for privacy? Yeah. I could just haul you out of here. So he reluctantly leaves the room and Locke and Sabbath get down to it. Now, here's where I see him in this conversation. He starts off bumbling, but he becomes more assertive with her. He kind of calls her out for leaving, first yeah. of all, and they kind of get into it. She points out that he didn't really go looking for her either. Uh, he says, well, there were difficulties. And she says, oh, you're the man whose life develops complications. I've so longed to meet you. The rest of us have it too easy. Yeah, yeah. But no, he de- he definitely is not as useless as he was as a child. Slightly more together, but only slightly. <laughs> it's true. But they they lay some things out there, and I thought this was interesting. Earlier in the in the chapter, Locke and Jean were speculating about whether she knew about Callow and Galdo. And Locke doesn't think that she could have because she wouldn't have toyed with them if she had known. He says, I, it's not something I ever would do. When he means toyed with them, he's talking about her planting the note on them, the whole he stole my purse thing. He's like, that's not something she would have done if she knew. But we find out that she at least suspected. See, I don't agree with Jean there, though. Locke says that about Oh, her. sorry, Locke. Um, I don't agree. Why can't I not keep those two straight? It's it's not like they're identical. Uh, I don't know that I agree with him about that. But what I find interesting is that Locke's, again, putting his morality on Sabatha. Yeah, yeah. And for him, that's not something that would have been a moral thing to do. So she would never do that. Yeah, no, good point. So I just thought that was interesting. Yeah, I hadn't looked at it from that point of view. That's a good thought. So she does tell him that that she suspected because she had passed through Kimura a year ago. She found the burned out burrow. She heard the stories of what happened. You know, he tells her that, tells her the story, tells her he had had an apprentice as well. And at that point, she gets pretty nasty. Yeah. She says, well, you certainly did a grand turn as a garista, didn't you? And Locke kind of gives it back to her. He says, well, you weren't there to help, were you? Well, that was, re- uh, that's pretty cold. Like, I don't, I don't at all, at all agree with him about the idea that she wouldn't have done that, you know, trick with the purse and the, and the disguise if she knew about Kylo and Gold. Like, I don't, I don't buy that at all. That makes no sense to me. But what she says about 
Bug. I, I understand she didn't know Bug, but what she says, that's pretty fucking cold. It is, and it, I think it touches on uh, that's kind this of the, thing t- that has bothered her, that Locke became a priest, and now he's taking apprentices. And and why she wouldn't have been as good a priest. Exactly. And she lay, she lays it out there at this point in the conversation, again, why she left. And again, I just really like this. There's not this like mystery or she just up and left and nobody knew why. You know, she says, she was like, she says roots are for vegetables. She was like, you, you know, chain died. You wanted to stay in the same glass barrel. You wanted to be chains, number two. And she says, I could have lived with you as like a partner, but I couldn't do the father figure thing where you were going to be my priest. Um, and I'm like, yeah, that yeah. makes sense. It's a completely valid reason to leave. Actually, yeah. yeah. So um, so they, they kind of get into that, and, and I just really felt that conversation. But the one thing that is frustrating to me that I don't feel, I feel there was a little bit of them not really communicating around, was like Locke says that it was a bonds mage who destroyed our home and killed but does not take the additional step of saying, and those are the assholes who you're working for. Now, in fairness, you have to assume at any time that they are being watched by a bonds mage. And I don't know that saying that in that setting would have necessarily been helpful. So I'll, I'll kind of argue against my own point there a little bit, but it seems to me that it's not really made clear that she understands that she's working for the people who killed Kahlo and Galdo. So I, or maybe d- I didn't read it right. I do feel that it's addressed that several times that she really had no choice, but to take this contract and really neither did. Uh, oh oh yeah, yeah. 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 Got that. You know, um, and it is brought up several times that, that he asks her point blank, you knew you were going to be competing against us when you and she's like, yeah, what of it? You know, what what right do you have to say? And then she kind of tells him that basically gives him her story that she went through the kingdom of the Marrows as she always planned, loving them and leaving them and empty and pocketbooks on the way. But she apparently left quite a mess behind and was steps ahead of some some powerful organization who was out to get her when a bonds mage appeared in her coach and said, we can make all of this go away. This is what you have to do. And then we're assuming threatened to kill Locke in front of her if she did not win. We're assuming. Yeah, I'm totally down with that. Like, I get that she didn't have a choice. I just, I don't know that she knows. And that kind of bothers me. I I mean, maybe. I think it's also true, though, that the Falconer's faction wasn't behind him killing Kahlo and Galdo. True. The Falconer kind of did that on his own. True. As kind of a dick move. He is just kind of a dick. He is kind of a dick. Yeah. So they kind of get past their disagreement, though, especially when Locke tells her that he sunk the gold that Chains had left them into the harbor because she says that pile of gold was the worst thing he could have done for us because it kept us tied down. Yeah, and they kind of go through a period of like, oh, you did this, oh, mm. you did this. They tell their story. She's yeah. impressed. He met the spider. Andy brought down the Archon. Oh, that's really cool. Things are getting happy now. You know what I think you should do? Kiss me. I think you should make out with me. She tells and, him and at I'm one to- point, if I don't do what I really brought you here for, I might lose my nerve. And I'm like, you idiot. 
don't kiss her. You idiot. Like, I, d- I knew that this was what was going to happen. You did. You Absolutely did knew this was going <laughs> to Like, I was like, she's she's wearing that same poison that they stupidly used in Game of Thrones with, you know, where it's on his lips, you know. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and then when she's like, kiss me on my neck, I was like, oh, okay, well, yeah, now. <laughs> yes, kiss me on my neck because right. I can put the poison there and not. Right. Get knocked out myself, you dumbass. <laughs> and he is a dumbass, and that's exactly what happens. That's exactly what happens. Like, She's got knockout stuff painted on her neck. She might as well put it in her cleavage. Come here, big boy. I mean, come on, it's a first date. <laughs> but that would be a funny... Leave a little bit of mystery. That would be a funny trick. It would be a funny trick. Like you'd be a superhero, like Power Girl. You've seen Power Girl, right? Oh, I've seen Power Girl, yeah. Right, just big hole where the cleavage is but like her power would be knockout power like she grabbed the bad guys and shove in her cleavage and there'd be some sort of knockout gas in her cleavage that would be great you should write a book no <laughs> so as he passes out though i mean he he kisses her he's very happy for like a minute <laughs> and then Dumb he's ass. like Bleh. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, hey, she, <laughs> she t- where's Jan? <laughs> That's good. What, you know, why you kiss me? You know, I mean, <laughs> the dumbass. So, as he's passing out, she says, Look, she asked him to forgive her, and she says she wasn't even sure if she was going to be able to do this, but he's too good to be able to have in the game. And she says, I have to beat you for both of our sakes. Yeah, and you were stupid enough to walk in here, so fuck you. Exactly. And she's also says she's worried about his health. She says, you're you're obviously not in good shape. And to beat me, even try to beat me, you would have to kill yourself, basically. Yeah. So Locke wakes up on a boat. And John has my favorite line Do you of the whole section. Okay. John is there. Down. He's yeah. covered in bruises. He says, Locke says, what the hell happened to you? He says, remember how she joked about 20 armed men in the other room? There were 20 armed men in the other room. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I'm just thinking in my head, like, what was the conversation like with her and the 20 armed men being like, you want us to stand here in this room like for one dude? And she's like, no, no, really? Like, I need all, can't like 10 of us go home? No, if there were 10 of you here, he might try to fight. Okay, you know. <laughs> well, it sounds like he did try to fight eventually. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so, so they're on a boat. They're on a boat, a luxurious prison boat. And apparently there's iron bars on the boat. to sea for a nice tour around the continent and they should get back to Carthane about two weeks after the election. <laughs> yeah. And I just... Check and mate. I just laughed and laughed. <laughs> oh, that was great. <laughs> so now look, I don't know obviously where we go from here. There's not like we're on the boat. It's like two or three paragraphs that we're on the boat, right? So like, I don't know if there's a way that they can like even get above deck. Like they might be locked into their cabin for all I know. But I assume there's a crew and I assume they'll probably find a way to get back, to get back in the game. But what I think would absolutely be better, like what I think would be a better story, and I don't think this happens, would be if... They never get back in the game. 
and the whole election happens. And they just sail around. Yeah, well, like, I don't know. There's going to be a lot more cog swallowing if that happens, though. <laughs> Times get desperate. I don't know if I can take any more mizzen masts. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not saying that we get that part, but like then the story continues after the election, mm. and it's like, all right, now we can kind of take this to. The, I think that would be fucking hilarious if it was all a goddamn red herring. Now you'd have to pull that off. You have to follow that up with some badass shit, right? But I, but I have faith that Scott Lynch can do that. Hmm. So far, this book this book has been pretty fantastic. So I want to hear some predictions. All right. So my prediction is okay. So first, my prediction is that they find a way to somehow talk their way on deck and get their way back onto the island. Right. So my other prediction is that in the interlude where they're involved in the whole acting thing, I think that's going to go really poorly, at least initially. And I think that the five of them are going to have to like band together to protect each other. So that's my second prediction. Okay. My third prediction is Locke's mother is a Bond's mage. Ooh, interesting. So, so that's why I read that section. Like, he's the only memory he has of his mother is of her sewing. Mm-hmm. And what do we see every time we see a Bonds Magi starting to do something with somebody's brain? Mm-hmm. What do we see them doing? Sewing a silver thread. Mm-hmm. The seamstress is called the seamstress. Mm-hmm. And after that, Locke doesn't remember anything until he shows up in Thieves Hill. Yep. So it also crossed my mind, I don't but I don't want to go this far. At least not until I get more evidence. It also crossed my mind that patience could be his mother. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's the case, but so my my prediction is his mother's a bonds mage. I'm going to throw some other speculation on top of mm-hmm. it. I think he was, so one of two things happened. He was either born to a bonds mage and something happened and she, maybe she died. I don't know. And she deliberately erased the memory. Maybe she was persecuted. Mm. Maybe she tried to fight against the rest of the Bonds Mage. I don't know. And she hid him, hid, destroyed his memory, left him somewhere. Or he has some sort of talent for magic, just like they do, but she blocked him from it. These are speculations. So it crossed my mind that maybe all this crap we've attributed to the 13th God, how he like slides out a window and there's a, like an elevator there. Mm-hmm. Maybe like, maybe it's not really his blessing from the 13th God. Maybe there's something he's unwittingly doing that's causing these things to happen. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That's like, that's some wild ass guess level speculation. That's great speculation though. But I think feel like his mother's going to somehow be a bonds mage 
or some, or he definitely 100% feel like his lost memory is because of something the Bonds Mages did. It's also why Cold Marrow was like, no, there's more to this cat that you don't understand. Mm-hmm. So there's somehow where his past is tied into that. That 100% I think is true. Cool. Anything else? I feel like I've done enough. That was pretty awesome. I love it. We're getting into some stuff now, right? Yeah, yeah. Now we've got some stuff to actually chew on. That was when I when I read the line about the sewing needles. Right. That was when I was like, no. Because oh. that's when it all came to me. I was like, you know, we talked about in the last podcast, you asked me like. I was like, what do you think about that? What do you think about? Because it was something about his. Oh, yeah. What do you think about. Like I'm like, well, I know we don't really know anything about Locke, but but we, mm-hmm. but we, there was no, there's nothing to chew on mm-hmm. other than the fact that it's a giant black hole. Right. That's the first hint of any piece of evidence to say, hey, here's here's something that it could be. Now I could be totally wrong mm-hmm. about the whole Bonds Magic. I think, mm-hmm. I don't, but I don't think I am. But either way, that's the first like real like piece of kind of hinting and foreshadow that I feel like we can actually grab a hold of, you know, unless there's stuff in there that I missed, which is also possible. So excited. Yes. I feel like I'm back in the game. Yeah. (laughs) Can actually start speculating on stuff. We have enough evidence to start moving forward. That's right. So do we have listener interactions? We do have listener interactions. So, Laura Weston on Facebook said, Anybody think of any songs that go well with the characters from the book? I was listening to The Offspring today, and You're Gonna Go Far, Kid, made me think of Locke. What do you think? So, I said I would put it out there for the podcast. So, Damn Superstition Dexa is not gonna write you a love song. Exactly. Because you told me to. Right. A stupid thing is. That would be my name. I would be the one to do something mm-hmm. like that. We what? That's <laughs> bullshit. My name's going to be Bullshit Dukes. <laughs> and then I have to go by Bullshit Dukes for the next 40 years. <laughs> That's the kind of stuff I would do. All right. So, so yeah, to the podcast. What kind of songs makes you think, do you relate to the characters? I think Molly Hatchet for John. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So I want to give, I meant to do this a couple of episodes ago, but Theo made a prediction about Locke getting out of the poisoning by having to eventually end up calling it a bonds mage. He did. He did. And we never really gave him his props for that. So props, Theo. So props. Good for on you. A little little That late. was a good one. I would no, I was excited when he wrote that. I was like, ooh. Yeah, yeah, right. He was right about that one. So he made a couple of other comments. He said, uh, the story's moving along really interestingly at this point with the past and the contemporary settings. And I've enjoyed the writing of Locke and Sabbath's interactions a great deal said, interestingly, my heart really sank when the mage did the sneaky leaping out of the vault and told Locke to play hard or Sabbath would get killed. That scene just pissed me off. Like, I understood it, but it was just, it just made me angry. Yeah. So Amy Lawrence uh, said, great analysis of Denna 
in this episode, and she uh, was talking about back in episode six, way, 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 way back. Oh, my first rant. Yeah, when we started going into Why this. Why I hate Denna. She's not like other girls I'm and all that stuff. still talking about it. Yeah, see? And in not this ep- over it. In this episode, it comes back around. She also said, literally started listening yesterday on episode six. You guys speak to my heart. So in approximately 47 episodes, <laughs> shout out. Shout out. Amy Lawrence. <laughs> Daryl Mansell said, a great series by Michael J. Sullivan. More fun than anything has a right to be. I'm just saying, D&D podcast, keep it in consideration. I downloaded it. I've been looking What's for a new again? series to read. I don't remember. I got it right here. Theft hey. of Swords was the first one, I think. I read something by him. And I got like 50 pages in, and I don't remember. It was something that came up, and I was like, blah, and I bailed. It wasn't this series, though. I don't know. I got it on my Kindle. I'll let you know what I think. Yeah, let me know. Let me know. So Daryl also, also has a new podcast covering Harry Potter called The Weekly Prophet. And it's a similar idea that he has never read them. How? How is I've anyone... never read them. But he's never seen the movies he, either. He also never saw the movies, yeah. I saw at least half the movies, so I know kind of how it ends. So yeah, so he's unspoiled on Harry Potter, and so they're going to do a podcast about it. And the podcast is called The Weekly Prophet, so look it up. It's definitely on SoundCloud. I don't know what other... I'm not sure where else it is at this point, but as we know more, we'll let you know. Speaking of other podcasts, I also want to talk about our friends podcast taking the cynic route so they're new podcasters and they have a new podcast and it's called taking the cynic route now listen it's not at all like what we do so i'm just going to tell you that but if you like really raunchy guy humor it's a pretty funny podcast so check it out iman economist said Another great episode, as always. I really love John and Locke's metaphysical discussions on divine philosophy in this section. Is there any chance you might cover A Year and a Day in Old Theradane, also by Scott Lynch, in an upcoming episode? I have not read that yet. Uh, Nor have I, but I just found it. It's actually, it might be published out there somewhere in an actual anthology, I'm assuming it is, but it's also on a website called uncannymagazine.com, and I pulled it up right here. I have not read it yet. So more to come. All right. We'll have to see. All right, and that is it for listener interactions. Do you have anything else? I don't think so. And next time we're doing interlude chapter seven and then the interlude that follows chapter seven. If you if you read chapter eight, you've gone too far. Correct. When you get to point Part three, which is called Fetal Honesty, stop. Outstanding. So you can find us on Twitter at the DND Podcast. You can find us on Facebook at the Duke and Duchess. Also join our face Facebook group page. I've actually changed the URL. The URL for the group page, I, I found a way to make it a little bit easier to digest, is Facebook.com's excuse me, facebook.com slash group slash 
the DND group. So another way to find it. But come join us there. Our homepage where we store our feed and all of our episodes is the dukeanduchesspodcast.com. If you like us, tell a friend. Talk about us on the water cooler. Pimp us out, yo. Bam, it's been a while since we've had. Been a while. A pimp us out, yo. All right, thanks everybody. Good night. Good night. Good night.